Eyewitness News. Big moments in time. Pastor Jeff told us we're there on the mountaintop, but we need to move on. At the end of the service, he struck the tent here and the tents, you know, he, he does that pretty fancy stuff. And, I, you know, I remember the tent. I remember him striking the tent and, and the thrust was we need to move on. Well, the problem is when you move on, you end up in the valley. And uh, it, was on the, it was on the mountaintop with the Father and Jesus last week. And this week, it's like in the valley with the devil and pain and sickness. So that's not great, but life is full of big moments. This week, it's the anniversary of 9-11. 11 years ago, we watched in horror as the planes hit the Twin Towers or heard about the plane crashing in Shanksville, PA, or I was two miles north of the Pentagon when that plane went in. But for me, 9-11 has other kinds of meaning besides that, which is older. It was 40 years ago this past Tuesday on September the 11th that we were expecting our fourth child. We had three girls, and I had talked to the Lord about the fourth. We didn't know the sex of the child. And in that first child, you know, that's back in the day. Some of you older guys remember this. You don't get in the labor room. You were the bad guy, you didn't, so you got to stay out. And then it eased up, and so by the time the fourth child came along, we were into the heavy breathing thing, you know, the Lamaze thing. And so I'm in there, and I've, I've said, Lord, I love those girls, and if it's another girl, it's tremendous, but if there's a shot, you know, being a boy, it'd be great. And, and the child was born, and the doctor turned the baby over and said, it's a boy. And I had this speech all prepared. <laughs> We've got a man-child in the promised land, and we're going to... And, and all I could say was, all right, you know. <laughs> so when I think 9-11, that's a huge moment for me. They're the kinds of moments in the Gospels, not as large as some of the other ones, but over and over again, people with need come to Jesus. All kinds of people with need. One of my favorite artists is a Dutch artist by the name of Rien Portvliet. And he sketches things like the images that you see on the screen and captures the emotion of those things. And most of the people who are coming are physically impaired or under great stress or hurting or lost or shunned. But all of us are impaired just in different places. All of us have challenges and needs. But this is the one-two punch. You're on the mountain. You're in the valley. Last week it was let's stay here. And this week it's let's get out of here. But Jesus, Peter, and James, and John come down off the mountain, and this is how the story unfolds in Mark, the, the ninth chapter, 14 through 29th verses. When they came to the other disciples, verse 14, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked, and the man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? I, I'm fascinated by how Jesus talks to people. He just, you know, he's just sort of right there. He says, bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Remember last week when, Jesus was talk when Jeff was talking about the humanity of Jesus and some of the questions were asked because he was human, didn't know. Maybe this is one of those. 
From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. I mean, that's a huge statement. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Pastor Jeff ended with this picture last week, Raphael's Mount of Transfiguration. And as the, as the picture scrolls, you see that, that in, the, in the top portion, you see Jesus, you see Elijah and Moses, and then the disciples. And then as you get to the bottom part of the picture, you see the crowd with the boy. On the mountain, it was a moment of revelation where God the Father pulled the curtain back and showed the glory and the good. And you get down to the valley, and he pulls the curtain back, and we see anger and evil. It's the kingdom clash. That's what we're calling this, this weekend. It's the clash of two kingdoms. It's actually, and I find this interesting, I don't know that I'd noticed this before, it's really a story of two fathers. It's Father God and Jesus and the father with the demon-possessed boy. One represents freedom, the other represents bondage. And on the mountain, we come face-to-face -face with God Almighty, and in the valley, we come face-to-face -face with the devil, not Almighty. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the demonic or that sort of thing. People, some people get nervous, some people get anxious. Some people, but the fact is, the number one movie last week in this country was a movie called Possession. Every time I turn on the TV, there's like a new vampire show on. I'm saying, well, you know, we're fascinated with this stuff. We, we just go there. But whether we're fascinated or scared or skeptical or whatever it is, there's an enemy of our souls, and he's real, but he's limited, Scripture says. He just can't do whatever he wants. He's, he's a fallen angel, the devil, Apollyon, Abaddon, Lucifer, and his days are numbered. He's beautiful. I can take you places in the world where you would see boys like this. You would see men and women who were possessed, some stark in-your-face places. But in this affluent culture and in this place, it's not so much, you don't see it as much. It's masked by this and that and the other thing. It's the subtler things that get us. But the fact is that some of these situations just boggle our minds. Point one, some things in life boggle our minds. I love the word boggle. I'm not exactly sure what it means, but it just, it means it confuses me. Some things in life boggle our minds. The prophet Ezekiel back in the Old Testament when God said to him, you see this valley of dry bones? Can I make these bones live? Ezekiel has a great response. He says, oh Lord, you know that. When you look at a young boy like this, you say, well, like, is, 
is that really a demonic thing or is that just a euphemism for epilepsy? Is that just... Well, Jesus is pretty clear. The Gospels are pretty clear. They say this person has a withered arm and that person has that and this, and this person is demonized in some way. I don't understand how all that works. But if a person can be full of the Holy Spirit, as we are encouraged to be, they can be touched by other spirits or full of other spirits. We don't know why, always. We don't know how that works. But whatever it is, whatever it is, it's horrific. And this is from birth. There are things that boggle our minds. I, I walk out of ICU units with three-year-olds with brain cancer. And I said, Lord, you know. I don't, I don't know about that. I sit with grief-stricken families without words. You, 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 there's nothing to say. And so it's just presence. You just sit. We see a child born severely impaired. We see friends fighting demons, figurative and literal. Things that, things that addict them, that just draw them down this road. And how does Jesus respond to that kind of stuff? How does he respond? What does he do? Well, he's very precise. This is what he says. You, you heard it already. All things are possible to those who believe. Point two on your bulletin is believing is the work. You say, I want, I want to I do work for the kingdom. I want to work for God. Okay, here's the deal. Believing is the work. Everything is possible to those who believe. The three words, believe and trust and faith, all have the same root in the New Testament. They all have the same root. Belief, believing something may, be, may come before trusting, as a friend of mine said. But I believe something, I trust, I have faith, all connected. I have a friend in Washington, D.C., who's a, an attorney. He was a little younger than I, but he had never really seriously read the Gospels. And so we were reading together a little bit. And um, one day he said, you know, I've read ahead, Dick. I've been reading ahead. I said, great. I said, what, what's your sense for this? And he just looked at me, and he hadn't gone to seminary or been in church Sunday school classes thinking about all this. He said, um, it's all about believing, isn't it? I sat with Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot, back in 1956, her husband was one of five missionaries killed by the Alca Indians in the Ecuadorian jungle. So her husband had died. She had a two-year-old girl. She came home, married a seminary professor, and he died of cancer. And she was now married a third time, and, and she had gone through all kinds of things, and she came and spoke in our chapel at the little college where I was, and I introduced this elegant 60-something woman from New England, and she stood up, and she talked for 30 minutes to our students about sex. And then she came to my office, and I said, what's the... What's the most significant thing in a life of following Jesus? And she looked at me without batting an eye and instantly said, trust, Dick, what else is there? So on this, on this side, I have my friend who says, it's all about believing, isn't it, Dick? And he doesn't know a whole lot about this. And here's somebody who's gone through the wars, and she says the same thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They have one view. They present you the facts. John comes along, the fourth gospel, and he's got an agenda. His agenda is not just to get you to know about Jesus. His agenda is to get you to believe. Sometimes John is called the gospel of belief so that you may believe. What we believe is huge. 
I have a friend who's now with the Lord. I was reflecting when I wrote this. and I thought, you know, I stand up here a lot and say I have a friend who's now gone on. I think I need to get some younger friends, okay? <laughs> but he was a great fan of the Apostles' Creed. And some of you grew up in congregations where you recited the Apostles' Creed. We believe this and this and this. And he said, I was standing in a little village, I think it was called Turnbridge Wells in England and he said I was in a graveyard by a church on a foggy morning and he said I can remember standing on top of a grave and putting my hands on the stones of that 500 year old church and shouting into the fog I believe in the resurrection from the dead what we believe is huge how we live our lives is absolutely based on what we believe you say about what about everything the origins of life relationships with people what I believe about morality, what I believe about money. Here's one. How about this thought? Do ideas have consequences? What do you believe about that? If you believe that ideas have consequences, then what we talk about in the marketplace is huge. What we believe about something or how to accomplish something is what elections are all about. Philosophy of government, role of government. We look for leaders in every arena who exemplify what we believe. We look for the person who believes like we do, or we listen to people who try to convince us that we should believe like they do. But the matter of believing is focused by Jesus after the feeding of the 5,000. In John chapter 6, these guys who had seen him feed the 5,000 with the loaves and bread come hunt him down, and they start talking to him about food. And he essentially says, you're following me because I'm your meal ticket. And then he says this in John 6, 27 to 29. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, here we go, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, and hear, hear this part clearly. If you hear nothing else this weekend, hear this. The work, singular, of God is to believe in the one he sent. That's the work. It's the work of the kingdom. As good as believing a sterling idea is, a good idea, believing in someone is better. The father says, I'll send my son, give you someone to believe in. He'll show you my kingdom. His name is Jesus. My kingdom is eternal, stable, mysterious, and immeasurable. Your kingdom, Foth, is temporary, unstable, obvious, and measurable. When we believe in someone, in this Jesus, we take all of him. We take his ideas, we become like him. We reflect him. Paul, the apostle, says it this way in 2 Timothy 1:11. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am, yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. I know whom I have believed, not just what. I know whom I have believed. Believe, and believing's hard work. I gotta tell you, it's worth it, but it's tough work. There are some days I, just, I get squirrely. You know, I get tired. I, don't, I say, is it worth believing? But it is. I took some 30-something young professional men, six of them, to Washington, D.C. a number of weeks back. We were sitting in a room with an 84-year-old man who's followed Jesus for 64 of those 84 years, 
been in D.C. for 50 years, and, and he said, do you have any questions? And this one young man who was a journalist said, what are your regrets? And instantly, this gentleman said two things. I wish I had practiced better what I preach. And he wasn't a preacher. He's not like an ordained guy or anything. And secondly, I wish I had believed God more. I wish I had believed God more. So you say, well, how do you learn to do it? Roy Cook, who's now with the Lord. <laughs> An older gentleman who used to sit with people who had come to faith in the United States Congress and other places. When you ask him, how do you believe, Roy? He would look at you in his winsome way. He wasn't a big man. He would just look at you and say, you have to want to. You have to want to believe. You have to be like the guy who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You got to want to believe. Some people say, I, I would believe if I somebody just saw somebody healed miraculously or stand up out of a chair, and go, then I'd believe. Don't you believe that? Don't buy that. You have to want to believe. And here's a father who's desperate. He saved his boy from the fire and from drowning. And maybe when he had convulsions, he had to stick a rag or a rope in his teeth to keep him from biting his tongue. He wants to believe. Ever been there? Where you say, Lord, I believe, but boy, I need to believe more intensively. And then the disciples get him aside privately and say, how'd you do that? Point three, Jesus says, these, these things only can come by prayer. Prayer is where the power lies. Prayer is where the power lies. I'll light that candle, I'll come back in a minute. When we really believe, we really pray. It's the court, not of last resort, it's the court of first resort. It's not, well, I guess now we'll have to pray. It's, well, I guess now we get to pray. I've been the recipient of a lot of prayer over the years. Three-year-old kid that I was in New York City in 1945, Caught scarlet fever, went into a mastoid infection. My parents, who were on their way to India's missionaries, sent letters to churches that were supporting us, said, pray for Dickie, because the doctors say this could kill him if it gets into his brain. They prayed, and three days later, they came in for pre-op, and the, and the doctor called my parents early in the morning and said, I'm looking at two sets of x-rays. This one shows a severe mastoid infection three days ago, and this x-ray shows nothing. You can come get your boy and take him home. I'm the recipient of prayer. I'm 17 years old and a freshman at Cal Berkeley, and I'm sowing my wild oats, which aren't very wild and aren't many oats by today's standards. <laughs> and I come home one day, and I can't find my mom, and I hear something in the bedroom, and I go in, and she's in a little walk-in closet in this little bungalow house, and I hear her on her knees down there. I can tell her, and she's praying for me, one of those mom's prayers. <laughs> oh, God, don't let Dick do anything more stupid than he's already done. You know, one of those deals. <laughs> This same person that stood on the grave and shouted, I believe in the resurrection from the dead, they came to speak at the little college, he and his wife. They had been, been in Ghana for 35 years. And they said, if any of you students want to come talk to us, we're not counselors, but we'll pray with you. I would much rather have them pray with me than give me advice. I have a, an acquaintance who says, when people call for an appointment to come see us as pastors, he says, I tell them, make it an hour. 
come in the first 30 minutes, you go in the prayer room and talk to God about it. If you still need to talk to me, come see me. It cut his counseling in half when he did that. Whenever I walk into the house, as I did today, and hear Ruth sitting at the piano, it's my wife, playing old hymns. I know what's going on. She's praying. That's what's going on. This is an election season. We need to be praying for our nation. We need to pray for a great awakening in our nation. There's a Tuesday group that meets that prays for the nation. We need to pray for those in authority who say, well, I'll pray for the guys I like. <laughs> Anybody can pray for the people they like. Pray for those in authority. Pray for the upcoming election. Some people or even fasting in prayer. In some of the texts it says prayer and fasting, where you focus so much on prayer that you don't think about eating. There's a guy in a breakfast group we were in, and I'll hurry along here. He was sort of a playboy, and he liked to talk about it. He asked if he could talk to me one day, and at the end of the time, I said, uh, John, do you think we should have a prayer? He said, yeah, but you need to know two things. I said, what's that? He said, I don't close my eyes, and I don't hold hands with guys. I said, I'm good. We're good. Six weeks later, he circles back around. He's struggling because he's starting to go with a woman who's a follower of Jesus, and it's not like his other relationships. And so he's in great tension. And we come to the end of that session, and he says, I said, do you th no, he, he said, do you, do you think we should do that prayer thing again? I said, be, be great. You know, you don't have to, but it'd be great. He said, do you think I should try? I said, be perfect. So we're sitting there with our eyes open, not holding hands, and he says, well, God, I know you're like blankety-blank trying to get me. He used some language that was a little better. It was way better than most of the language he used, and I started laughing. He said, was that okay? I said, it was perfect. It was good, you know. That would, that's great because God hears our heart, not just our words, doesn't he? That's what prayer is. We have a big fat candle on our counter at our house. I wasn't raised in a liturgical church where we had votive candles. But some years ago, Ruth and I made a decision that we would have a candle on our counter. And when somebody called and said, and says, there's a desperate thing going on, we need prayer, what we do is go over and light the candle and let it burn all day. And every time we go through the kitchen, it reminds us to pray because these things only come out by prayer. They don't come out by talk. They don't come out by wishful thinking. They come out because the people of God are focused on talking to God about such situations. You say, how does that work? I don't know. All I know is that it's a wonderful thing. It's a powerful thing. I've been the recipient of it. I, um, Ruth and I invited the head of the Navy to our house. He was an old friend before he was ever in the Navy. His parents were friends of ours. And um, he and his wife came two weeks after 9-11. He had lost 42 of his best and brightest in the intelligence wing when that plane hit the Pentagon. Only five people were left in the hospital from the Pentagon at the end of that first week. You either walked away or you died on 9-11. And he... Um, he and his wife came, and when they walked in, we could tell they were sad. And they said, we just got word. There was a young lieutenant who got terribly burned, 
And we've been with him. We went over and even prayed by his bed. But he's slipping away. And on the way here, they called us and said his body is shutting down. He's gone comatose. And his organs are shutting down. We had dinner. And after dinner, we said, what? Why don't we pray? Kevin, I'll call him. said, okay. And we joined in our little kitchen, the four of us joined hands. And we just prayed this prayer. Lord, we don't know what your great plan is. But if it's all the same to you, we'd like Kevin to stay with us. We'd like him to be with us. Amen. 10 o'clock the next morning, my telephone rings, and Connie Clark, the admiral's wife, is on the phone, and she's sobbing. And she said, the hospital just called, and Kevin woke up and said, what happened? And within two weeks, he was out and walking and alive and well. I don't know how all that works. All I know is that when Jesus says, believe and pray, prayer, He's, he's not whistling Dixie. It's not just some casual comment. I believe it's powerful because anybody can do it. My young friend sitting right down here who's a young boy right here. I love it when young boys sit in the second row. He can do it. A person who looks like me can do it. A person in a chair can do it. A person who is deaf or mute or blind can do it. It's just saying, God help me or God help my friends or whatever it is. It's an equal opportunity here when we pray, when we believe and pray. It's the antidote to mind-boggling things of life. You, you say, how can you say that just so blatantly, believe in prayer? I didn't say it. Jesus did. When kingdoms clash, believing in prayer wins. Let's bow our hearts before him. Thank you, Lord, for this weekend. Thank you for this moment. With our heads bowed and no one looking around, I just have a quick question. Two questions, actually, that I want to ask. There may be some of us here tonight who say, you know, I've heard a lot. I've heard a lot of Bible over the years. I've, I've been in a lot of services, or maybe you've been in none. But you say, I've never believed Never, not really. But I'd like to start believing tonight. I want to believe. And you would just slip your hand up very quickly and put it back down. Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. Yes, I see you. Others, all the way across the... Just, just lift your hand and just put it right back down. It's wonderful. Lord, thank you for this quick response. Thank you for... Your faithfulness, your word brings life. Thank you that we get to believe. And even if, as these few folks have raised their hands in their own heart, let them say, Lord, I believe and I want to believe more. I believe that you are the Christ and that you can 